Welcome to another of the Coot Street Podcasts, which Jonathan Strawn and I have been doing since March. This is Gary Wolf, and today I am lucky to be able to talk with multi-genre author and spectacular baker, Madeline Robbins. Uh, wow. I, I, the reason I mention that, because you do put pictures of your cakes on your website. And yes, and my sourdough bread, because I have become that kind of COVID cliché. Of course, everybody. That that was that was a cliche in the Bay Area even before COVID came along, though, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but a friend of mine who lives in uh, Florida was like, "I don't get it. Why is everybody making sourdough?" And I had to explain to him that in the early days of the shutdown, when people were looking for things to do, yeast was harder to find than rubies, and uh-huh. so you start making sourdough because you can't make your bread rise otherwise. Um, and I reanimated my old sourdough cult or culture and uh, have been baking bread all summer, which is where the COVID-15 comes from, alas. Of course. Uh, well, is, 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 is this um, affected your writing at all? Because um, for, for people who, who haven't been following you lately, you, you, you started out really in science fiction, as I recall, and then started writing historicals and mysteries and historical mysteries and historical mystery fantasies. <laughs> And all historical mystery, fantasy, romances, uh, have I left anything out? Uh, well, I actually, it's worse than that. When I was a very small Madeline, I uh, wrote five Regency romances. Uh-huh. Uh, first one, I guess, was published when I was 23. And by the time I had written the fifth of them, I was really over romance. And uh-huh. I was over the, the sort of Georgia higher imitation thing. Um, and the reason that I got into writing the alt history historicals that I'm writing now was that it was a chance to stand a lot of the accepted stuff in the uh, higher type regency on its head because uh-huh. it was not necessarily a fun and glamorous time to live. So no. I get to play around in the mean streets of London, which were me. Right. And your most famous detective is not exactly an upper class heroine. Well, she was she was a lady of good family who threw it all away for love and has been trying to find a way to support herself ever since, which she does with her sword rather than on her back, which would have been the usual thing that one did. Well, given all the things that are happening with the lockdown, are you able to get any reading done? I am reading uh, a good deal. I tend to have a couple of different things that I'm reading at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What I'm reading may depend on, now that I'm going back to work, I have my read on public transportation book that goes with me and I just pick up when I get on BART. Um, it depends on what I need that day. Do uh-huh. I need fluffy bunny reading or do I need um, something with a little more substance? Do I need something that's familiar or something that's unfamiliar? So I, this is part of why I have several books going at a time. Do you, and you actually were reading them and not listening to them, because I've been talking to a surprising number of people who, if they venture back on public transportation or jogging, have been listening to audiobooks during this. Surprised me a little. I find it hard to 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 actually absorb what I'm hearing when I'm listening to an audiobook. Um, it's both distracting and not as absorbing as I would like it to be. I'm kind uh, of the I, same way, yeah. When my kids were small, we would occasionally have an audiobook on in the car, and I had to kind of not listen because it would distract me from my driving, which is not good when you have small kids no. in the car. Um, 
I find that I've been making um, masks for donation. That's my my war effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I'm doing that, I tend to watch have streaming stuff that I don't have to pay too much attention to in the background. If I'm doing the kind of, say, design work for my day job that is a lot of finicky moving things around but does not involve words, then I might have music on. If I'm doing words, I have no music. Uh-huh. Uh, there are people who write long set lists about what they write to. I don't do that. Um, and this summer we were writing um, both an audio tour for the museum I work at and a an exhibit on the 100th anniversary of suffragists in print. And so I've, a lot of my writing energy has gone into that, but I'm doing a little here and there. Well, you mentioned, okay, just to just to embarrass you, you mentioned Fluffy Bunny reading. What's what's an example of a Fluffy Bunny book? Little Women. Oh, <laughs> well, some people might argue with that. Well, the thing is, Fluffy Bunny does not necessarily mean that it's lightweight. It is uh, something um, my husband and I refer to the Marvel movies as Fluffy Bunny films, not because there is not some substance to them, but they are comforting comforting in their familiarity. You find new things each time you watch them, uh, and some of the performances are really good. So right. Fluffy Bunny reading to me, um, the Dorothy Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey books would be Fluffy Bunny reading because uh-huh. I have read them a million times, so I'll read them a million and two. Um, or uh, Jane Austen, again, because of the familiarity. And every time I read them, I find new things and I walk away with a slightly different attitude toward what I'm reading. Um, but there's the comfort of that familiarity. And so I, I think that that's part of it. It's especially after a day when um, the guy in the White House has been particularly obstreperous or there is some god awful piece of news. Uh, we'll finish watching Rachel Maddow and my husband will say, Fluffy bunnies, and I'll say, yes, God, <laughs> fluffy bunnies. No, I, um, I, I see what you mean, because it's not necessarily a book that's, uh, well, I mean, like, like I say, Little Women sometimes surprises people now who've seen a couple of movies and are reading the novel for the first time. But given your definition, I could think, the one, one book I started looking at, I didn't reread the whole thing, but it's one that I know well that I started reading, Catch-22. And that upset me the first time I read it. Now it's kind of what you're defining as comfort reading, because I know what's there. I know the funny bits are going to come, and I know I'm going to laugh at them. That, that's fair. Um, it's, um, I think familiarity is a big thing right now in a world, as the movie trailers say, that uh, keeps throwing curveballs at us, certainly this year. Being able to open up Pride and Prejudice and find out yet again that it is a truth universally acknowledged that a a uh, single man of good fortune must be in want of a wife mm-hmm. is remarkably soothing. Um, now, I, I am, don't get me started on Louisa Alcott because I am <laughs> not only a fan, but I have like ideas and things and have read, I am not an academic on the subject, but I have read a lot about her and her family, especially her dreadful father. Um, I have no use for the transcendentalists. They always seem to be off in a corner someplace thinking deep thoughts while somebody else does the laundry. <laughs> have, you, have you visited the Alcott house? And No, Alcott? I never did. And I lived in Boston for 10 years. Oh, how could you not? Um, well, I didn't have a car at the well, time. And yeah. Getting 
to Concord was a schlep that nobody I knew who had a car was interested in making. Uh-huh. Well, when you're doing reading, are you doing any reading for... Um, oh, let, let me ask another question, because something else I've noticed talking to people during the summer. It seemed to me at the beginning of the lockdown, a lot of people were reading Camus' The Plague, or they were reading Station Eleven, or they were reading Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. Were you tempted to do anything like that? Um I did, because I was making masks, I did a lot of sort of, a lot of, sounds like I'm, I'm doing in-depth research, but I did mm-hmm. uh, some looking into what mask protocol had been in 1918, uh, things like that. San Francisco had mask riots. Uh, really? They were very compliant for the first, like, three months, and they brought down the curve, as they say, and the city said, okay, it's all right, you can go around without masks, and there was a spike. And the city said, okay, the ordinance is in force again, and it was an actual law. It was not Uh just a recommendation. And there were mask riots. There were people who were like, we've done this. We're not doing it again. Find another thing that we can do, because we're not putting Hmm. on the masks again. Um, Does this sound familiar? It sounds creepily familiar. Creepily. Well, a a lot (laughs) of stuff when i really start despairing over the state of the world i find myself going back to my history books and looking at okay dissension in congress well so far we haven't had anybody beat a uh, another senator over the head until he has ptsd and could never comfortably sit in the senate chamber again <laughs> um that was charles sumner in the 1850s i think uh, and you you go back and look at some of this stuff, and it's sort of like, okay, and we got through that, partly because the rest of the country didn't know what was going on. This is that 24-hour yeah. news cycle assassinating us. That's um, one of the things I noticed also in reading uh, a couple of novels that have historical bits in them. I was reading, uh, oddly enough, Jeffrey Ford's Ahab's Return, which was kind of a sequel to Moby Dick, but a lot of it is about the know-nothing party in the 1850s with their anti-immigrant stance and their anti-intellectual stance and the kind of speeches, I I looked up some things afterwards, yeah, the kind of speeches from the know-nothings, even the name sounds like it belongs today. Well, I mean, aside from anything else, that's around time that uh, you've got the Irish coming in because of the famine. Right. And the whole no Irish need apply. Uh, And it's also... The abolition movement is heating up, and so there are people who are fearful that they will lose their supremacy or what have you, yeah. uh, because everything is a zero-sum game, apparently. Uh, I don't get it, but then I don't get it. Well, are you um, to get to the, the last thing we always ask on these podcasts, what are you working on, or what can we expect to be seeing in the next, I don't know, year or two? Because nobody knows when anything is coming out anymore, since I every, know. everything got delayed from spring to summer and then from summer to fall. And now I'm, I'm talking to people who are planning on publishing books in 2022. <sighs> and you get this sort of flash of 2020. Wow. Yeah. Weren't we supposed to be on Mars? Where am I? I? No, I don't want flying cars because I don't trust people driving in two directions, let alone three. Um, But uh, I had a story come out. I I write short fiction fairly infrequently, but I had a story come out this year in fantasy and science fiction, which is a mashup of uh, 
CAPEX um, or CAPEX RUR and Pygmalion, in which Henry Higgins decides that it will be a good test of his teaching skills if he can teach a robot and hires um, the guy from Rossum's Universal Robots <laughs> to build him a, teach, a creature that he can turn into uh, Liza Doolittle. And merriment ensues. And that was really fun. I don't write humorously that often, except sort of in asides. And so just going through this and um, basically pinning Henry Higgins to the wall was great oh, fun. Course, yeah. it's, it's also one of those ideas where the minute I heard it, I thought, hasn't, why hasn't somebody done that before? I know. <laughs> it's like, of course Pygmalion is a robot. I mean, you go back to the original myth anyway, you're Pretty much, you know, they're going back to the same sources. Yep. It's a block of alabaster or something. Well, no, she's now brass and has leather hinges and things like that. And a bustle which hides the um, reservoir for the naphtha that runns her. <laughs> naphtha is a great idea. Well, because I, I didn't want it to make, She has, you have to be careful. She is, it has a garment that's made of asbestos so that people coming near her do not burn themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and, and that was really fun. I am slowly working on, I have an actual draft of the fourth Sarah Tolerance mystery, uh. but it's not quite working for me. And there is a scene that I thought was a throwaway that I am now realizing is actually pivotal. And so I've been poking at that all summer when I can. Um, I will say that lockdown has, I was not ever the most productive person in the whole world, and lockdown has not helped with that. <laughs> um, see fluffy bunnies above. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm also working slowly on a fantasy set in um, current day San Francisco, which will be fun if I ever get to finish it um, and well, involve unseen uh, San, fairies. Uh, it sounds great. I mean, uh, San Francisco seems to be one of those cities that just uh, – invites fantasy i mean not only uh, obviously our friend ellen clages has has done things there but it seems to me going seems to me that uh there was oh i know what it was there was a, mo a science fiction movement and there's an anthology called an old science in old san francisco of science fiction and fantasy and horror stories in san francisco newspapers in the i think 1890s 1910s or something like that um, wow and so uh, and and People are still researching that. So, yeah, that's uh, th th that's a ripe area for fantasy, and we'll be looking forward to that. But, of course, we've gone over again. Uh, I knew we would, uh, and I don't care because I'm having fun. I've been Me talking too. with I've been talking with Madeline Robbins. Um, this is Gary Wolf. It's been the Good Street Podcast. And thanks again, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thank you.